I'm just trying to understand why they're saying there's five sexes in humans when there's, there's clearly two. I say that as someone who's studied biology for a long time. Today I sit down with Colin Wright, an evolutionary biologist and founding editor of Reality's Last Stand. His cartoon about his sense of alienation from the left went viral after it was retweeted by Elon Musk. So it's not that kids are even confused about whether they're trans. They're literally be told, if you're gender non-conforming, then you're trans. You know, maybe we can give this person puberty blockers, which is sort of a, a gateway to cross-sex hormones and surgeries and things like that. He explains why gender ideology is so damaging to society and how he sees universities using diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, to determine hiring, promotions, and tenure. And at Berkeley, and increasingly at more universities, they're using these DEI statements as a first filter. You know, I view them as, as political litmus tests because there is only one way to write these things. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Colin Wright, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me. This is fantastic. I, I agree. Um, I've wanted to talk to you for a while, and uh, we have this perfect opportunity with Elon Musk having tweeted this graphic, very, very interesting graphic. And so how did this graphic come about? It's been such a bizarre week after that happened, yeah. Um, you know, this is a cartoon that I just created one night in my pajamas. And it sort of just was meant to have me just sort out my own feelings of being sort of alienated from, I guess, the political left on a lot of issues that I, I felt were very, like, core for me. Issues like freedom of speech, that normally on the left were viewed as sort of the sacrosanct value in order to speak truth to power. Uh, it's, it's being increasingly viewed as being, you know, with, with, with suspicion. You see it published in articles under, with scare quotes, like quote-unquote free speech. Uh, and it's even being accused of, of being dangerous to democracy and minorities. Um, other issues such as, you know, the old value of um, treating people and judging people by the content of their character instead of by the color of their skin. I've seen recently these, these new uh, ideas ushered in, sort of this identity politics, um, these equity initiatives that are basing rights on, on group interests instead of individual rights. And then on a topic that's sort of closest to me uh, is the whole women's rights issue, where we've now seen this sort of shift on the left of what what a woman even is. Is it even definable? Is it related to biology? Uh, and so I, I come from a background in evolutionary biology where I saw people sort of making these weird claims about about sex and about gender and are they the same? Are they different? Uh, and when I started pushing back against this stuff, you know, using scientific arguments, I was just called all these crazy names. And so on, like, on all these topics where I previously identified with them, you know, these are core, I just no longer really see them best represented on the political left, and it's made me and I think a lot of others, and if you identify with, with that cartoon, maybe feeling sort of politically homeless in a certain way, or at least you don't see those values on the left anymore. So, you know, I'm a lifelong Democrat, and this cartoon represents those core values, but not necessarily every axis, but at least on these core values that I, that I felt that caused me to vote uh, Democrat. That's what this cartoon really represents for me. You mentioned you noticed, you know, these some of these subtle changes, but I think it was really in your work that you first started just kind of asking yourself, what am I doing? And so tell me about that. That was a, a very slow burn. And I didn't even notice, really notice the change until I had changed so much. 
you know, I started out going, you know, as an undergrad, um, wanted to become a, a professor studying evolutionary biology. So, you know, I went and got into graduate school, started a lab, you start meeting other faculty and things like that. You might, you know, if you had some pictures from undergrad of you at a party or something, maybe you'll take those off your, your, <laughs> you know, your timeline or something. Um, and then it was other things like, oh, what pages was I liking on those things? Maybe, you know, oh, this is maybe a controversial thing and I just want to make sure because it's public and I've had some advisors were following me on Facebook. And it was just really sort of incremental over time until I got to the point where I'm at Penn State and I'm doing my, my postdoctoral fellowship there. And I'm just like closing down every single bit of my social media. What pages am I liking anything? And I don't like any pages because I'm not sure which ones are going to be uh, okay to talk about. Um, I started seeing these these articles being published saying that there's you know five sexes and things like that and I would I would just make an initial question like what do they mean by this and it was I was just immediately attacked and I just slowly realized looking back like my initial reasons for going into academia were so I could ask these types of questions I could ask any questions this, I thought academia was the place where you ask questions and you receive feedback um, from people who aren't going to attack you, the person, but they're going to attack the idea. And everyone realizes that we're all playing the truth game and trying to just find out what's truth. But I wasn't getting that. I wasn't getting uh, people, you know, just asking me questions back and why do you think that way? You know, here's this evidence, here's that. It was just you're, you're being transphobic, you're a bigot, this is rooted in white supremacy, all, all this type of stuff. And I'm just trying to understand why they're saying there's five sexes in humans when there's there's clearly two, because <laughs> this is, I mean, I, I say that as someone who's, who's studied biology for a long time. Uh, so yeah, so it was just this, this slow shift. Um, I think it's just because each day you're not changing very much. You're not self-censoring a whole lot each day. It's little by little until I got to the point where I realized how, how completely muzzled I made myself. So there's, is there some specific moment where you made a decision to <laughs> shift gears? Or? There was, there was a series of events. So there was the, the Sokol Squared hoax, the James Lindsay, Helm Pluckrose, Peter Bogosian, uh, where they had sort of, um, they put these, I guess, hoax papers, although they were, they were legitimate papers they put in, you know, they, a lot of them were just using the same arguments they would, and they weren't, some weren't based on data. So they, they got these into some journals that dealt with like gender. And I had always, already been questioning this whole like gender ideology what do people mean when they say they identify as a man or a woman as opposed to just being a man or a woman? And then we had the Scientific American. They published an article that was called like the sex spectrum. And it was this beautiful diagram that just showed male and female on each side. Then they had like this big spectrum in between. And it was saying, you know, there's no such thing as male or female. We're all just sort of clouds of maleness and femaleness. And you can reside anywhere on this spectrum. Uh, and then there was an article in Nature. I think it was called Sex Redefined. And the subtitle was... The idea of two sexes is now viewed as overly simplistic. Um, and then, you know, and there, there were just these terrible arguments looking at chromosomes and talking about hormones. And, you know, these things don't make male or female. They're just, you know, they're, they're associated with that. And they were, these were so easily debunked. And to see them in such, like, these prestigious platforms. I mean, Scientific American is, a, is, is not a journal, but it's a popular, trusted scientific outlet anyway. But then Nature, this is, like, the most prestigious journal in the entire world. And when I saw that it was in nature, um, yeah, I, I couldn't really 
stay quiet anymore. I literally asked myself, what would Christopher Hitchens do? Because I knew this would potentially be career suicide. Uh, both my advisors, well, my advisor and my mentor both told me not to publish you know, my initial article in Quillette on this. Um, but I just realized, like, I, I studied animal personalities, social behavior, and I just couldn't deal with the fact that I'd be potentially teaching my work on collective behavior and social spiders or wasp personalities when half my class might not even know what a male and female is or not, might not even be convinced that those are even real biological categories. I just, I, I couldn't care about the minutia when the big picture was seeming to be distorted behind me. Fascinating. Um, and so, yeah, so you did, so you did publish in Quillette. So that, that was actually your, that was the moment where you really went public with your views, I guess. Is that right? Yeah. And so what happened with this Quillette article? subsequent to that. Yeah, it went super viral. <laughs> and I was reading like every comment on Twitter. And most people, because the article basically said, you know, there's, um, it was called the New Evolution Deniers. And it talked about how in the past it had been, sort of the attacks to evolution had been from, from the right, from evangelicals, uh, you know, doing creationism or intelligent design. But now we have these, this new strain of people who are denying, denying evolution, you know, of sex differences and stuff. But unlike the previous attacks that were coming from outside the academy from evangelicals, because they don't really have a big presence in the evolutionary biology community, if you can imagine. But now, being in the academy, the, these attacks are coming from within. And so they're much more difficult to, to root out. And they had sort of elicited this, this immune response to me when I was sort of trying to push back against these things. Um, so I, I tried to address that, that major problem and the nuances of know, inside the academy versus outside and why this is uh, causing a lot of people to sort of self-censor. A lot of the responses to it were this, you know, saying that I was conflating sex and gender. Because in the past, we were, people were asked, at least if, if you're on the left, to say that, you know, your sex, male or female, that's like the biology. But your gender, and then they use the words man and woman, that was sort of more an identity. And this is something that a lot of people we're okay with, or like, okay, as long as, and I was, I was okay with it too at the time. I was like, okay, well, as long as there's a, f a wall between identity and biology, then like, okay, I can, I can meet you halfway. And then these articles, these were just like completely obliterating that wall between them. People were identifying as sexes, saying that it's a social construct, all this stuff. Um, that's what the article pointed out. And people were just really, um, they didn't believe me when I said people were denying that sex is real. And I actually so occasionally go back to read those comments uh, because it's, it's just kind of like interesting to see what people thought then because now people get it. Now, now it's the cat's out of the bag and they know that people really are saying that male and female aren't even like, these real natural categories anymore. Uh, but my piece was one of the first to really spell that out, I think, in great detail. And, and what year was this? And just trying that was to 2018. 2018, yeah. right. I mean, it's incredible. Four years how things have shifted. There's people who were talking about it before me, um, but I think my article at least was, went the most viral on it, so. Now, what about, you know, what about your mentor, your supervisor, your, you know, coworkers, people on, you know, people presumably on scientific papers with you, what happened there? So I have some mentors that agree with me, and, you know, a lot of them too, that were closest to me, they told me, when I, I sent them the essay first to, for them to look at, you know, just like, is this correct? <laughs> and their response was, 
everything in this is perfectly fine and true, um, but you can't publish it because it would just sink your career completely. And that really took me back because, again, as I mentioned, well, this is why am I in science if I can't publish something that's true? Um, and that's when I did the whole, you know, what would Christopher Hitchens do? <laughs> well, he would just, you know, say, screw you, and he'd publish it and, and deal with the consequences. So that's eventually what I ended up doing. Um, I had, so I still have some mentors that, that support me behind the scenes. They won't publish or they, they won't acknowledge it publicly. I used to give talks, uh, you know, to their university. I'm no longer invited to give those talks, even though they don't have a problem with me, but they just think that it would get protested. And it would, if they were the ones who invited me, it would, be, it would cause a lot of trouble for them. And I have some colleagues that have just outright denounced me uh, on social media. Um, they think I've just turned into, I don't know, like close to the devil himself, it seems, by looking at how they, they talk about me on social media. But again, I've always just maintained that sex is real and it's important in some contexts. And I'm open to discussing the issues with anyone who wants to have the conversation. So that doesn't seem too too devilish to me. For the record, right, it, it does seem amazing that we have to kind of spell this out, but um, why is it not a spectrum? Why is it, why is it polar, you know? Yeah, because when you look at what a male and female are, they're defined by the reproductive anatomy that is developed for the production of either small or large gametes, sex cells, either sperm or egg. Um, those reproductive systems, you know, they don't really come in, in halves. They're, most people at birth are identifiably male or female, you know, 99.98% of the time. Some could be, you know, intersex. I, I leave it open to have some individuals, you know, be kind of sexually ambiguous, but that doesn't mean they're a third sex because there's not a third type of sex cell that their anatomy is organized around to produce. Um, there's only males and females and then intersex people, which most of those conditions are actually like distinctly male or female intersex conditions. Um, but just because you might be sort of sexually ambiguous, this doesn't mean there's, there's more than two sexes. People usually conflate my claim that sex is binary with, with the claim that everyone who exists is either male or female. Um, but what I'm really saying is there's only two sexes. And so maybe, maybe some people are sexually ambiguous, but they're still not a third sex, um, if that makes any sense. You know, I, 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 when I say the word binary, I'm usually talking about um, you know, composed of two parts, like a binary star system or a binary compound, uh, for instance. Not sure. like computer code where all you have are ones and zeros, um, but sex is primarily composed of just, just two parts. And most everyone is either 100% male or 100% female, much like you flip a coin. Just because there's an edge on the coin doesn't mean that heads and tails come in percentages or that they are social constructs. Yeah, and that, and that doesn't have anything to do with whether they're more masculine or feminine in their behavior or their thinking or so forth, right? That's exactly. the corollary, I guess, to what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, so there's, there's a couple ways people attack this, attack biological sex. One is the whole sex is a spectrum and they'll use intersex people as this like middle ground, and if there's if there's a middle category, that means the other two categories don't exist. It's a spectrum. So I just sort of described to you like why th that's not the case. And then there's this other attack where they use what are called secondary sex characteristics. So these are the characteristics that your body undergoes like during puberty. 
like women will, will get breasts, um, men will get a lot taller, their jaws, jawline, they'll get facial hair, you know, uh, um, th these, the sex differences that we just, we commonly associate with, with males and females on an everyday basis, but they don't really define what, what you are as a male or female. They're influenced by if you're a male or female and the types of hormones that your gonads are producing. Um, and people will use these secondary sex characteristics to say that sex is a spectrum because on any one of these characteristics, you know, some males have a breast development, some women have square jaws and they're tall, some women have, have facial hair, like they just, some do, there's a lot of variation out there. Um, and so you can see that there's like these overlap in the types of traits that males and females have. And they use that to sort of argue that this is a spectrum of, of body shapes. And while it might be a spectrum of you know, body shapes with, any, with respect to any of these little traits here. Um, again, these are secondary sex characteristics. They don't define what it means to be your sex. They're just associated with it. And, okay, and while we're on it, you know, but why is this important? Why is it important? You know, I think I, think I saw you once say, this is the hill I'm going to die on. You exactly. know, and that's like, why, why, why should it be a hill to die on? Well, I just think it's such a fundamental part of our biology. This is why I was, you know, in the early, early 2010s, I was arguing with a lot of people about whether or not it was evolution versus intelligent design and creationism. Because if you're denying, I think, evolution, I think you're going to get a lot of things wrong about human behavior in certain contexts. And, you know, there, there's just a lot that follows from denying really fundamental aspects of our biology. And I think the same thing accounts for, for biological sex. I mean, there's so many different you know, it's, it's such a fundamental aspect of our biology and of our species and the evolved differences there are between males and females, not just in their bodies, but in their, you know, the, their behaviors on average. <laughs> uh, and if you're going to deny that exists, then you can't really, um, you know, all the studies that we're going to do on, on, on mating interactions, evolutionary psychology, this, this stuff goes out the window. You just can't make sense of so many human interactions if you're denying, like, these fundamental biological aspects. And then on another level, um, just because we are a sexually dimorphic species, in some contexts, paying attention to the sex of an individual matters. Uh, for instance, in sports, you know, males go through puberty where we have this growth spurt. Testosterone surges through our bodies, we get much stronger. This doesn't happen to females, and so it makes sense to like segregate sports by sex because um, you know, they, they don't have the benefits of going through this puberty that makes them makes males bigger, faster, and stronger in, in every single you know, athletic measure. I don't think sex should matter in, in all cases. It's really only a very small number of contexts, such as sports, um, what, what prison you might go to, given the different rates of violence between males and females and sexual violence and things like that. Um, it's, it's really only in this very small number of contexts where it matters. Like, I don't think sex should matter for getting hired, if you're going to get a promotion. Um, there's so many things that it doesn't matter and it shouldn't matter for. But on some, it really does, and this is where I've just been trying to, to maintain, you know, this this distinction. So, what's your what has your reaction been to, you know, basically the sports and how they have changed over, like, the acceleration, I guess, in the change over the last few years? You know, I was I was actually at the event at Georgia Tech where Leah Thomas, who's a biological male who identifies as a female, won the women's. 500-yard freestyle. I, I see it as sort of a, 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 a proof that an ideology is just completely insane. Like, if you're a, 
<laughs> if, if you're an engineer and you're making bridges and you're a really bad engineer, like your bridge is gonna shatter in front of you. Like you'll see your bridges, they're not gonna withstand heavy trucks going over them. And I kind of, it's, it's more difficult to see like a, an immediate um, consequence of your bad ideas that you might have about human nature. Sometimes they're, they're not so apparent as like a collapsing bridge. But if you're denying that biological sex is real, I see that the fact that we have a male competing in a female sport who's like now the, the women's national division one champion, to me that's like the ideological equivalent of like a bridge collapsing and it shows the absurdity of, of an ideology. It's, it really is just like the ultimate representation of why this ideology is completely wrong. Um, the notion that we even need to segregate sports by an I identity instead of sex, and this is what these people are claiming, that sports are segregated by your gender identity instead of your biological sex. But there's nothing about a, a gender identity that makes you better or worse at sports. It would be like segregating sports by, by political party or something like that. So it's just completely arbitrary, but people are pretending that this is what it's always been, it's always referred to. Um, so I, I mean, I, I call my website like Reality's Last Stand just because to me, like this is the low-hanging fruit of, of getting something right. Like it's really easy. Like even a child knows that male and female are different, and uh, this matters in certain contexts. And uh, you know, we have a lot of people saying to follow the science who are saying that uh, that males and females don't exist. And this is, as you mentioned, the hill <laughs> that I've chosen to die on. You know, I'm sure many people have made this comparison to you, but it's the, the you know the, the the emperor has no clothes. The story, right? So you're the kid here, right? Basically saying, hey, why why is it so few people? Like how many how many people in your school? How many people in your profession are talking about this? Almost no one, really. I can't think of anyone in my who is a colleague with me who would at least publicly say the stuff that I say on on Twitter and in my essays about male and female not being social constructs. Um, about the need to certain, you know, segregate certain areas by sex that where it makes sense. Um, I, I know some of my colleagues who just don't say it because, well, they don't agree with it, but they're, they're not saying it because they think it would be, you know, a career suicide for them. And then there's a, a, a healthy bunch that I, I think actually somehow believe it. But I've also seen the trajectory of them fr going from a, a place where they would have agreed with me, and I have seen them you know, tweet about these things, or we've had conversations before, and then I've seen them sort of slide over the last few years into just a full embrace of this whole sex denialism that I'm seeing. So it's, there are all, there's almost no one talking about this. I mean, I've had some journal editors reach out to me who wanted me to write the scientific paper about why sex is in the spectrum, and I'm not even like the world expert on this. Like, I studied bugs, I studied insect behavior, uh, but it's really interesting that they they can't find anyone who's in academia who would actually be an expert on sex development and all these things. They can't find them to write the articles that they want to be written to debunk a lot of this stuff. So they have to find like the exiled spider biologist to write these things because there's nothing they can take away from me. You know, I'm, I'm not going up for tenure. I'm not going to be in the field trying to collaborate with people. Uh, so I have nothing to lose. So that's that's the weird situation we find ourselves in now with scientific publishing. And so, well, there's Brett Weinstein, of course, right? That would, that is, I think, probably would would agree with you. 
Yeah, him and uh, his wife, Heather Hying, they both, they, they talk about this fairly frequently. Yeah, they would definitely agree. This is something everyone agrees with. Like, this isn't a controversial <laughs> statement. It's, it, it's, I'm always in this weird space where people think it's a controversial thing, but me and Brett and Heather, we're not, we're not saying things that most, the vast majority of scientists weren't saying five years ago. And the only reason they're not saying it now is because of this sort of this cultural social shift. So we're just middle of the road biologists from 2015. Because yeah. there's a certain level of cognitive dissonance like you have yeah. to deal with, presumably. Yeah. You know, I think it was said well by Peter Bogosian recently. He said, you know, in the past, you would have a lot of intellectuals and scientists, and we're always sort of making caveats and, and claiming, you know, making sure that we're not saying things that we don't know are true. Um, but now we're sort of in this position where a lot of academics are pretending not to know things they know rather than pretending to know things that they don't know. It's oh. just the opposite. Like people know what males and females are, but they have to just sort of portray ignorance on some of these topics in order to, I guess, still get invited to the cocktail parties or something. Well, it actually reminds me of something you told me about also offline, which was um, just this. There was this point at which um, you, you know, critical race theory was kind of entering the academy, and you were, you know, you were actually studying to how to write your diversity, equity, and inclusion statements for applications and things like this. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about this? So there's there, this kind of shift, right, in what was required to, you know, get the next position or apply and so forth. Yeah. I mean, previously, if you're applying to a professor job, you'd have your, you know, your CV that you attach. We send them, of course, has all your publications and everywhere you've worked before, all the talks you've given. Um, you'd send them a research statement that talks about all the research you've done bef before and sort of what you plan to do in the first five years at this university when you're going for tenure. It needs to be this extraordinarily detailed document. I'm going to have this many students doing this. I'm going to get a postdoc that's going to work on these projects. A, B, C, you know, A1, A2, all that stuff. Um, and then sometimes they'd have sort of another, like maybe a, a teaching statement. What's your teaching philosophy? These were usually what you'd have to submit. Uh, they recently then started adding something called like a DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion statement. And I think initially a lot of these things were just, you know, pledging that you're not going to, you know, discriminate on based on certain traits. But then they started really taking a real ideological slant where they had to be written in a certain way. And they would have workshops that I had to go to where they told you exactly like what you need to write. You need to concentrate on like the disparity, you don't see as many minorities in these in, in academia and STEM because of all the systemic barriers. Um, and But it was only looked at through one very clear left-wing lens mm. of why these disparities might exist. Um, I would probably agree with some of them, but not all of them. But I just remember not agreeing with a lot of these things. And I was being asked to even list all the racial and sexual minorities that I had ever mentored. You know, and, and I, I had, I had mentored people who were gay and people who were racial minorities, but it was never because they were black or because they were gay or anything. I just, I, I just picked the person who I thought was the most enthusiastic and who would do the best job. And so it just felt like, you know, actually listing these people on this document of just like, oh, there was this person, they were, they were gay, there was this person, they were black, this person was from Vietnam. It, it just felt like this 
total dehumanizing experience. Like I'm taking the complexity of all these individuals that I knew well, because I would work with the whole summer for these people. My really, they became good friends. And I'm just sort of flattening them all into this one label and like pretending, and then, and then using them to sort of stand on top of and say, hire me. That's sort of how, what it felt like I was doing. Um, I, I just felt really uncomfortable. And then I, d I didn't understand why I had to, to fill this out, along with theoretical physicists. I mean, they have to do these things too, to get a job as a physicist or a microbiologist, or in my case, an evolutionary biologist and ecologist. It seemed to have nothing to do with, with the job itself. And then some of the DEI statements would even go further, and they would ask, how does your research further DEI? You know, and I studied, again, the social behavior of insects and arachnids. There was nothing that I'm doing that's <laughs> that my research. My research is not about human in increasing diversity. It's about the behavior of bugs. Um, and so uh, some of these were just impossible to write. And then I would ask, why am I trying to, why am, am I being asked to write these in the first place to get a job as a professor? So did you write any? Can I ask you? you know? I did. Yeah. yeah. So I wrote one, <laughs> and it was focused on community colleges, because I went to community college myself. I thought it was a great experience. And partially because of the diversity that was at a community college. You have, uh, I had classes where Someone in my, sitting next to was 75 years old. They were just going back there because they enjoyed learning stuff. They would just take a class on, I think they were taking an Italian class when I was taking my foreign language class. There were people who are from the military. There's a lot of single moms. There's, there's so much like actual diversity that you don't get in, uh, in most universities. But one thing about you know, a STEM major like myself is if you start out going to a community college, you don't have the opportunity to do the hands-on research because they don't have the funding. The, the scientists there, they're just teachers. They don't run their own labs or anything. And so my DEI statement was about how I want to, I was at Penn State at the time, how I want to bring people from the community colleges, these STEM majors in there, because you know there are a lot of underrepresented minorities in these groups, and bring them into Penn State, um, have them participate alongside Penn State students just so they can have that experience. They can help build their CVs. And I thought that was like a really good diversity statement, and one that I would agree with, one that I thought was pretty noble. Um, I'd sent it out to some people who were on these diversity committees uh, just to, you know, to check it out, like how is it going to do, and they, they just straight up told me that this is not going to, this is not going to fly, at least at any, it was the person I sent it to was at a Canadian university, and they told me that this wouldn't fly at any Canadian, you need to talk about you know, equity, you need to talk about the disparities in, in certain groups in a very structured way. You can even look at the, the rubric that UC Berkeley has when they evaluate their candidates. And at Berkeley, and increasingly at more universities, they're using these DEI statements as a first filter. So before you'd send your CV, and it would go straight to the department, and you know, the department head would look at it, so these are actual scientists looking at it. Now they have to, your application has to pass through the HR department, Mm -hmm. When they're looking first at the DEI statement, and if you score below a, you know, a, a four out of six or something, they don't even pass your CV on to the department. And so this is what you're dealing with at places, at least like Berkeley, and I'm sure that's been adopted at many other places. So these are what some people have called the diversity commissars, I guess, that are saying that, are, that these statements are passing through. Yeah, they're, they're extremely common now. Maybe about a third of the universities I applied to before had them. 
And I think probably, you know, I left academia right when the whole George Floyd stuff was going on, right before actually. Um, and there was a massive push to have these. I, I still get the emails from University of, uh, of California, Santa Barbara, where I, I finished my PhD. And immediately after that, they, they wrote, the students wrote these big, you know, there's one big email signed by just about everyone they could find saying that they wanted to adopt Berkeley's um, DEI statements as the first filter and also use these DEI statements and um, your DEI track record for going on to get tenure and additional promotions after that. So at every step of the pipeline, and I even know kids applying to just to, just to an undergrad, they have to write these too. Mm -hmm. And to apply to grad school, they need to do it. And to apply to postdocs, they do it. And then postdocs applying to professorships need to do it. And then as you try to rise the ranks in, as a professor, it's all DEI all the way through. So the pipeline is just peppered with <laughs> these, uh, these hurdles, basically. That's, you know, I view them as, as political litmus tests because there is only one way to write these things. And it's, um, you have to just sort of slide into that, that way of speaking about these things that you commonly hear. I mean, it's, it's all boilerplate. If you've read it once, you've read it a, a million times. So basically, you're calling it a political litmus test, i.e. there's just, you know, you give me the correct answer, you can pass go, so to, so to speak. Yeah, because it's, it's usually illegal to ask directly, um, you know, what, what your, your race is or things like that. Like in California, they use these DEI statements because they explicitly can't hire students or hire anyone based on, based on race. So they encourage people to uh, do these DEI statements and they encourage them to talk about their experience you know, w with oppression and things like that. And so from these statements, you can sort of glean racial information off these things in order to sort of hire whoever you want to hire. So this is it's sort of a way to just, you know, a, a workaround, one for their, you know, the sort of equity race-based hiring that they want to do. And then on top of that, there's like the political litmus test where, you know, you have to speak in terms of equity and group disparity and systemic racism and all that stuff. You, you mentioned to me that, uh, that you felt like some of your coworkers or peers or co-authors were basically told they kind of have to denounce you. Uh, so tell me about this. I had one colleague who, um, you know, in the past we had agreed on, on lots of stuff. And this is someone that I, I knew would, would have disagreed with the statement, trans women are biological women, because they publicly said it was as ridiculous as, uh, as believing in a flat earth, for instance. And then they got a job at a university, and then very soon after they had pronouns go up on their bio and on their email signature. Um, and then I'm, I'm getting a phone call from this person, or text anyway, and this is someone that I had collaborated with. I had, I had co-authored papers on, on spiders and ants and things with. And this person said that their colleagues are seeing that we've co-authored papers. At that point, it was out that I was, I guess, some major horrible person, some bigot or something, <laughs> because I'm saying sex is real. Um, and that you know, there, he felt at least that it was enough of a problem where being associated with me, he's, it might be giving him splash damage and potentially would harm his career. And so he said that he had to publicly denounce me. Um, and I'm fine with you know, publicly challenging my views or things like that. Um, but this 
public denouncement wasn't here's here's why Colin's wrong. It was just trying to you know take me out of the feet, trying to say this person is you know has all these bad ideas. He's not an expert in X Y. Um, here's some sources that I haven't read myself, but who I have on good authority from people I trust that it's really good, um, and that type of thing. So it was just a uh, you know it's it's not so much that that they wanted to denounce me, but it was the sort of ideological policing that's going on that made him feel the need that he had to do this. I think that's that's the real story there. Mm. Um, because, I mean, it seems like anyone could have just said, oh, I don't, I don't agree with Colin on this stuff, but, you know, we just, we co-authored some spider papers together and, you know, that's it. Like, that seems like anybody should be receptive to a response like that. <laughs> but it was, it was no, there had to be this public, you know, distancing mm. um, in order to gain, I guess, points or something with his, with his group. You know, it, it makes me think of these struggle sessions that some of my colleagues at the Chinese Epoch Times have told me about, uh, witnessed in China. I don't know if anyone's ever made that comparison to you. Yeah, you know, I don't know a, a whole lot about mm -hmm. the history of communism, but I do know sort of the ideological policing that goes on and the, the pressures that individuals have to denounce their neighbor. And I, I do think this is, you know, it's definitely it was not this was a lot less bloody, <laughs> you know, it wasn't, I wasn't being, you know, brought to a camp or something, but um, it's, it's the same, it's a similar dynamic, it's a similar, um, I guess, human tendency and urge to, to sort of conform uh, through group pressure. So I think there's, there's some, some, some parallels, though I would hesitate to make all the parallels. Sure. You know, um, I, I just remember, I just remembered something that from, from the graphic, the, the, the conservative in the third part of the graphic is saying LOL. Why? <laughs> is that, or is there any particular reason for that? This is um, kind of, so when I first published my article, um, the, the New Evolution Deniers in 2018, I had a lot of people who are conservative sort of come into my DMs and say, you know, you're, you're, they're going to run you out of the university. You know, they're kind of joking about it. And I was like, no, what are you talking about? They're just I'm just saying what's true, and we're, we're all going to sort this out like adults. Um, and then, you know, over time, it was just been almost this running joke where they're just, I'm being called like a far right whatever in all these publications. There's a hit piece coming out calling me this. Calling, recently, I was called a right wing commentator. You know, I'm just, I just talk about biology. Um, and they just think it's hilarious, like, because they just, they see what's happening to me, and I've just kind of remained uh, true to my principles. Um, but from their point of view, it's like they've, some of them have gone through sort of that before. They've been called the bigot their whole life or something just for, you know, having their conservative views. And now they're seeing me being called that, even though I used to be on that side. Um, and so a lot of them find it pretty entertaining. So that was, I guess, where that, <laughs> that little bit entered in. Do you think it's, they're going to, the left will rush further than, you know, to the, to the left, yeah. according to your graphic, or is that even possible? Yeah, I'm not even sure. You know, there's a problem with like the act, the left-right axis in the first mm. place because I, I, I don't even view, I don't even know what you want to call it, critical social justice, wokeness, you know, all the basically the ideology is grounded in 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 critical theory. I don't even really see it as like a conservative, liberal thing. Mm. I don't see it as being liberal at all. Um, I, I see it as like its own axis almost. It's like a, the Z axis if you just want to go, you know, the, my, my graph would need like this something going straight up. 
so I don't even know if I'd consider them left. It's, it's this other sort of worldview. It's, it's not even, they're just more extreme on this, you know, so if you keep going to the left, this is what you get. It's, it's an adoption of an entire lens that, through which they're viewing the world. Um, I think there's going to be more of that, for sure. I think there's a lot of pushback on that right now. And eventually, because I think all the critical theory stuff is, is so divorced from reality that, you know, like that whole falling bridge thing, we'll see, we'll see more of these absurdities pop up. Um, and eventually, I mean, reality has a way of sort of sticking around <laughs> and it's not going to go anywhere. And the further you get away from reality, you know, it, it's just, it snaps back at some point. It, it mm -hmm. does, it'll call for its debts at some point, I guess I would say. Um, and I, th I think it, it's, it's got to happen soon because it's getting a little crazy out there. Well, you know, I'm reminded, uh, I was talking with Peter Bogosian when he was on the show about this spectrum being different. I think his take was it's a, the spectrum is more of a cognitive liberty spectrum. So he was mm -hmm. saying, you know, I have much more in common with a, you know, conservative event, event evangelical who believes that I have the right to believe what I want to believe than I do with people ostensibly on the left who believe that, you know, there's one way to think, i.e. according to the, the DEI statement, for example, like this is how you're, this is, this is, this is the correct answer. Exactly. I've, I've been in a lot of conversations with people on the right before when I used to talk about evolution versus intelligent design and creationism. But I could talk with them because we're both playing the truth game. Like we just have different ideas of what's true and what evidence we're picking from. Like I think they're completely wrong in everything they believe. But a lot of them, you know, there's some that would just say, you know, it's just what I believe and whatever, and it's only faith. But there were a lot who would come with arguments and, you know, I don't think they were very good, but at least they're playing the argument game and trying to find out what's true. Um, but a lot of the, you know, the, the woke critical theory type people, they, they don't even think in terms of like this is true or false. They, they think like truth is a socially constructed thing and it's your truth and her truth and, you know, it's that it's a collective type of thing. Like they, they would say that truth is a social construct and all these things are social constructs. So they're not even playing the same game. And that's why I find it increasingly impossible to talk to some of these people um, because I'm trying to put up sort of circle things that are real and they're just trying to apply queer theory to everything and, and blur the lines on everything. What, what do you mean try to apply queer theory to everything? What, is, what do you mean when you say that exactly? Yeah, so queer theory is, is a certain type of critical theory that will look at the world and it especially likes to break apart binaries. Um, so th for instance, male and female, yes. they would say that, you know, these are social constructs and these are, these are asserted to exist because people in power want this binary to exist in order to uphold the oppression of, of people we call women or something, for instance, or we, people we call females. Um, and that these binaries don't exist in nature. This is all just power structures at work here. Um, and so they want to undermine all these binaries because they see that as also tearing apart, uh, you know, the, the power relations of the people who are keeping these constructs going. That's literally what they believe. Like they, they will look at any sort of binary uh, and try to, try to blur the lines. So whenever you see people saying that, you know, sex is a spectrum, this is just applying queer theory to biological sex. You know, this is the perfect time to just talk about this other op-ed that you wrote a while back, which I noted, which was, you know, essentially about pronouns and, and why you're arguing when people ask you about them, you should just simply ignore them. 
I guess, or, or say you're not going to do it. Um, so, you know, we, we've talked about, I think, quite a bit why, but it might not be obvious. So tell me that. Tell me your rationale here. So I see the whole talk of pronouns, um, and it's a very common thing now. In, in some places, um, you know, where I'm from, Tennessee, is probably not a big deal, but if you're uh, in uh, San Francisco or something, a lot of corporations there, a lot of the schools there, they'll start off sort of these icebreakers with these introductions where they're asking, you know, hi, my name is whatever, my pronouns are he, him, uh, what are yours? And it seems really innocuous to someone looking out, like cause this idea, like we all have pronouns, like people refer to me as him, people refer to you as him. Uh, but there's, there's a bit of ideology that's underneath this entire thing because what this new ideology that I, it's being increasingly called gender ideology, what it really asserts is that being a man or a woman or a boy or a girl has nothing to do with whether you're male or female and everything to do with gender identity, how you identify, which really just boils down to identifying with these sort of social roles and expectations that society sort of, um, uh, I guess, uh, asserts on people based on, on their sex, you know. Uh, these ideas, you know, women, if you're a woman, you have to be nurturing. If you're male, you have to be, you know, domineering and aggressive. Um, and so it's, a, it's whether or not you identify with these roles. If I say, you know, you can refer to me with he, him pronouns, you know, I might be just saying to use those pronouns because I'm biologically male. That's what I, that's what I refer to. That's when I use someone's pronouns because they're, they're male or female. But when you say that to someone who believes in this new gender ideology, what they're hearing is you identify with the social roles and expectations of femininity or masculinity. So if you're a woman and you say, you know, I use she, her pronouns, you're saying you identify with femininity especially, which, you know, maybe you're a masculine female and you don't identify with femininity and now you all of a sudden can't call yourself she or her. Um, I, I view this, these insistence on having these pronoun rituals and exchanges as sort of a, a way to normalize gender ideology and just by our everyday introductory ice-breaking things here and there. Um, and the people who are participating in that, they, again, they probably don't even know what they're doing. The people leading these pronoun uh, events, they probably don't even realize what they're doing. They've just been told it's the inclusive, good way to go about doing things and to learn people's pronouns. Um, but it does have a really big ideological component. And so I just tell people either, tell people to call you by your name or just don't participate in these whatsoever. Now, I'm, I'm usually okay using other people's pronouns, but when they ask me, you know, it's like, oh, I'm Colin. Um, you can use whatever pronouns are most comfortable with you. <laughs> you know, this something like that, but uh, I don't think we should be participating ourselves in these types of exchanges unless you actually agree with gender ideology. And a way I pointed this out in the op-ed was, like, imagine that the, I think the American Astrological Society was, was this big organization that has a lot of control over institutions. But say you don't believe in astrology, you think it's pseudoscience, which I happen to believe. Um, but they, they want you to begin all your conversations with, you know, hi, I'm Colin, I'm a Sagittarius. What's your sign? You know, if you don't believe in astrology, if you're just gonna respond, I'm Jan, I'm a, what are you? <laughs> Uh, Taurus, I believe. You're Taurus. No, wait, no, yeah. I'm Scorpio. Pardon exactly. me. Yeah. Scorpio. So yeah. if you're responding that, but if you don't believe in astrology, you know, you're being asked to sort of work within this worldview that you might not believe at all um, and perpetuating astrology in this case. So I see this as sort of a parallel to the whole 
gender pronoun. Yeah, and except that people might say, what does it hurt? It's in both cases, actually, right? What does it hurt if they want to know that I'm a Scorpio? You know, what does it hurt? Right? This, is, this is presumably what a lot of people think, and they'll just go along with it. Yeah. What is the cost, real cost? Well, for, I mean, it depends on how much power an astrological society would have over a society. There's probably a lot of things they could mess up. <laughs> but at least in the terms of, of the gender ideology, you know, it, I don't think it, it's not necessarily harmful, you know, at your workplace when you're doing it, like what's the measurable harm right there. But I see the harm is like the normalization of this dissociation of being a man or woman with being male or female. Um, because this puts this idea, especially in children's minds, that, um, you know, especially if they're identifying with stereotypes, that if you're a, a little girl who's more masculine, then and you're being asked what your pronouns are and to really think hard about your gender identity and you're basing it on stereotypes, you might think, oh, maybe my pronouns are, are he, him. Mm. That makes me trans. And then we have this whole system of um, you know, medicalization going and they're saying, well, well, if you're transgender, that means that you know, this is a medical condition and that you know, maybe we can give this person puberty blockers, which is sort of a, a gateway to you know, cross-sex hormones and surgeries and things like that. It puts this, it really just makes kids who aren't trans think that they are um, and puts them on a potentially precarious pathway to, to interventions. I think it really, um, medicalizes gender nonconformity in a very real way. So if this was just kids, you know, having a new, a new way to talk about whether they're masculine or feminine, that'd be one thing. But it's got the whole, like, gender ideology trans conversation that comes in on it, which is a medicalized conversation in and of itself. Um, so th that's why I think that is potentially dangerous for, for kids to be taught. Well, and, and to your point, I mean, I, I saw some statistics recently. I don't remember exactly, but just like a astronomical rise in people identifying this way you know so the, the the question was you know how much of that is influenced by the 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 social norm so to speak right yeah there's a lot of conversation about why there is this astronomical rise in people claiming to be trans or at least people going to gender clinics to presenting as trans um you tend to get from you know the trans activist side them saying that well this is just there's greater societal acceptance now of being trans so people are they've always been this number number of trans people they're just they just feel comfortable to say it right now and sure maybe that maybe that explains some of some of this um, then there's the other argument that is this is there's some social contagion going on you had the Brown uh, University researcher Lisa Littman sort of showed how some of these trans identities run in circles and the biggest predictor of whether someone's going to come out and say they're trans is whether they're, how many of their friends are claiming to be trans as well. Um, I think this is probably explains probably more than just societal acceptance, but I think there's actually a, just a really clear thing that people aren't talking about as much um, that is it's just sitting right there. It's, it's, there's just been this expanding definition of what it means to be trans. I mean, I'm writing a piece right now that's going to spell this out in greater detail, but if you look at the organizations, these big human rights organizations, the HRC, Human Rights Campaign, if you look at um, Planned Parenthood, if you look at this company called eGale, this is in Canada, and they're responsible for all the LGBTQ plus uh, materials in the public schools up there. 
and, and especially one video that Egal put out, they literally define what it means to be trans as, and I think this is a verbatim quote, you can check the video. You've probably heard the term transgender, or even gender diverse. That's when your gender doesn't entirely match the one you're assigned at birth. A lot of people use trans for short. That can mean the gender you're assigned felt meaningless, restrictive, or altogether just didn't quite fit. That might seem like a pretty broad definition, and that's because it is. If you don't behave the way society expects you to act based on what's between your legs, so based on your genitals, your sex, then you're transgender. And then they even say later in that same video, and the video is called Trans 101, The Basics, they even say later in the video that you don't even need gender dysphoria to be trans. Like transitioning, having dysphoria doesn't make someone more or less trans. And it's not something all trans people experience. So they're quite literally saying that just gender nonconformity is all it needs to be transgender. And this is paralleled in Planned Parenthood and the Human Rights Campaign as well. So it's not that kids are even confused about whether they're trans. They're literally be told, if you're gender nonconforming, then you're trans. And so, of course, you're going to have this astronomical rise in people claiming to be trans, because mm. you've just transed the average individual. I mean, there's many ways that I am not just a perfect stereotype of masculinity. Um, I would, my favorite thing to be doing every day, like I would, I would love nothing more than to bottle feed kittens, like all day. That's something that sounds really amazing to me. You know, I have this nurturing side that is, you know, arguably not a very masculine <laughs> thing to want to do. Um, so in many ways, we're all like, quote unquote, non-binary, which is uh, another type of trans identity out there. Um, and I think that just explains why we have this astronomical rise. The shame is that we haven't had the, the medical s associations really catch up to the fact that the definition has been just expanded mm. beyond border. I mean, it, it's, it used to just refer to a very small subset of people who uh, expressed sort of gender nonconformity, very young. It was insistent, persistent, and consistent. When they started going through puberty, it wouldn't desist. They would, they would remain extremely gender dysphoric, dysphoric. And those people would almost always grow, on, grow up to be, uh, you know, to be trans. They would, they would persist in the dysphoria and they would, they would benefit from transitioning. That's not what we classify as trans anymore. And now it's anyone who's gender nonconforming. That's literally what they say. So Elon Musk posted this graphic of yours um, basically in the context, of course, of him buying Twitter, or ostensibly that's going, that's going to go through now. And this whole huge debate that's been happening around free speech and the value of it. You told me about the fact that free speech is something that you saw, you know, significant encroachment on in the academy and, and of course, you know, in your, in your Twitter existence. So any, what are your thoughts here? I think it's one of the most important values that we can have. I mean, if you can't speak freely, you can't really think freely because, um, you know, no one comes to the most accurate picture of reality just by sitting in a room by themselves and, and, and thinking to themselves alone. You need to voice your ideas and you need to get feedback. That's actually why I happen to love Twitter. I mean, some of the feedback that I get is really angry and you know over the top and hyperbolic, but there are a lot of people who will give you really good feedback and there's no better way than to sort of tweet a thought, even if it's not completely baked, <laughs> um, because it'll, it'll help you really get so many diverse perspectives uh, on on what you're what you're thinking, and ultimately it's that it's that back and forth, it's that play with others and from their perspective, 
their expertise, their backgrounds, that can really help you just sort of piece together your sort of tapestry of reality as, as you know it. Um, and on Twitter, you know, this has become the public square. It really has. This is where people put out their ideas and are getting feedback. I'm very excited that Elon Musk is taking over because he has a very strong commitment to free speech. And especially on this issue of sex and gender, I don't think anything's been more censored, maybe with the exception of like COVID stuff. Um, I don't think any other subject's been more censored than, than people talking about sex and gender. I mean, we had Megan Murphy, who was one of the first people to be banned on Twitter for, for this, or at least the first notable people, um, for just saying the statement, men aren't women, which even according to gender ideology is a true statement because they think a man is someone who identifies as a man and a woman is someone who identifies as a woman. And so clearly, a person who identifies as this is not a person who identifies as that. So, uh, but of course, they read into it that, like, that a, a male isn't a woman or thing like that. People have gotten banned on Twitter for saying, re referring to a, a trans uh, woman as a natal male. Like these are just biologically accurate things to put on social media. So I've been just increasingly worried that anything I say is going to be immediately have me banned. I have to word my tweets in ways where I'm not calling Leah Thomas a male. I'm just I might use a Leah Thomas event um, or a, an article to just make a general statement like. Males shouldn't compete in female sports without saying Leah Thomas is a male or things like that, because that could get me banned on Twitter. Um, and then they also have a tendency of changing their terms of service and then re retroactively applying their new rules to old tweets in order to, to ban people. So I was just never new day to day. You know, is my Twitter even going to be there? Am I all of a sudden going to be made obsolete? Um, so I'm, I'm more optimistic that, that that's not going to happen with a more sort of open, free speech oriented Twitter. So uh, I'm excited about that and hopeful. The other thing that I wanted to talk to you about is you took, I guess, a kind of a big step and you said, I'm going to stay independent. Reality's last stand. That's going to be my stand. That's going to be my hill. Um, so tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's my, it's my sub stack. It's my publication uh, that I've recently decided to go all in on. Um, I'll be doing original investigative journalism on, you know, gender ideology in schools, talking about the biology of sex, debunking a lot of, you know, myths and pseudoscience around around sex. A lot of the stuff we talked about here, uh, why intersex is in the third sex, that type of stuff. There's already some content on my my blog about that, or blog my my website, my Substack. Um, and I also want to have it be sort of a a publication for other people too. If they, if there's parents that are dealing with gender ideology in their schools, their stories about being a, being a mom and having kids who are, who are, you know, being indoctrinated into this ideology. Um, what are their stories? How is this playing out for, for real world people? Um, so I want to publish these types of stories and then my own journalism and my own scientific uh, writing about these things, just so I can, I can sort of contribute to the conversation about what's going on here and give people these resources that they need because, you know, a lot of these parents that are going, you know, that have kids in these public schools that are being taught these, this gender ideology stuff, there's no place they can go. If their kid is, has went on the bandwagon and comes home and saying, call me they, them, because I'm non-binary, well, then the next step is to say, oh, find a gender therapist. Well, they're all, they're all just taken over by gender ideology too, and they're just going to affirm every step of the way. 
So I'm trying to just to give you know the other side of this argument basically and um, give people the tools that they need where they can really understand what's going on, what sex is, why it's okay to be gender non-conforming, and that doesn't mean that you're not a male or female just because you happen to have you know gender non-conforming behaviors. So uh, yeah, this is the this is the next step for for my career. Well, Colin Wright, it's such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining Colin Wright and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Hey everyone, I've got some exciting news to share uh, for American Thought Leaders and Cash's Corner. We're actually going to be expanding our production team and hiring an associate producer. You can actually see the job description at ept.ms slash associate producer. That's all one word. If you know anyone who might be interested in this job, who has the qualifications, or you yourself might be interested, we'd love to hear from you. Again, that's ept.ms slash associate producer, all one word. If you haven't subscribed already, you can now try a 14-day free trial and get access to all of our deep dive interviews, documentaries, and exclusive content on Epoch TV, from American Thought Leaders to The Larry Elder Show. Just go to ept.ms slash free trial yawn.